back to Stories Plantarum, the podcast all about fabulous flora from sci-fi and fantasy and real-life plants that seem out of this world. I'm your host, Rebecca Hayes, and today's episode is a little bit different than usual. To celebrate the end of the year, I'm going to spend this episode talking about the mythology behind many of the plants associated with Christmas time. Full transcripts are available at community.plantae.org, and I'll post a link in the description for you. Alright, as always, thanks for listening this past year. And now, let's dig in to Stories Plantarum, Episode 7, Stories of the Solstice. Humans in the Northern Hemisphere have been celebrating this particular time of year long before the times of modern Christianity. Occurring on December 21st, the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year with the longest night, after which the daylight hours start to increase with each passing day until the summer solstice. This was certainly a cause for celebration. For cultures living in northern latitudes, the winter brought with it starvation and uncertainty. So the winter solstice was the point in which people regained hope that the summer would soon arrive. The Romans dedicated this celebration to their god of agriculture and time, Saturn, in a week-long raucous festival called Saturnalia. This was by far the most popular Roman holiday and was marked by gift-giving, dancing, singing, stuffing oneself with tons of food, gambling, drinking, lighting candles, and socializing. All of society was put on hold for the festival. Schools and courts were closed to the public so that everyone could participate in the festivities. One particularly interesting Saturnalia tradition was social rule reversal. Slaves were symbolically freed and treated like royalty during the ceremony, and their captors had to wait on them hand and foot for the festival. Western Christmas celebrations carried over many traditions from the Roman Saturnalia holiday, most surprisingly the actual date of Jesus' birth. The Bible never actually offers a specific date, and many historians think that the Western Christians decided to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, which happened to be the day of the winter solstice on the Roman calendar, to ease assimilation throughout the newly converted Roman Empire, where Christians and pagans were attempting to coexist. Romans were not the only culture that provided basis for contemporary Christmas traditions. Our celebrations today also borrow from Nordic, Siberian, Mexican, Celtic, English, German, and Egyptian folklore and history. Many of the most recognizable symbols of Christmas time are themselves plants, 
or are associated with plants. And that's because the cultures from which these traditions arose had a deeper connection and appreciation for the natural world around them, and found value in bringing the outside world into the home. We'll start with the quintessential sign of Christmas time, the Christmas tree. These cut trees are perfectly sized to fit standing upright in the average home, and are kept green for several weeks starting in December by watering at the base of the trunk. The most common species of Christmas trees are Scotch pine, Douglas fir, Fraser fir, balsam fir, and white pine. The solstice tradition of bringing cut greenery into the home traces all the way back to ancient Egypt. At the time, Egyptians believed that in the winter months, the sun god Ra became ill, and the solstice marked the point at which his health was on the upswing, as evidenced by the lengthening days. As a token of respect for Ra, they brought green palm fronds into the home to symbolize the triumph of life over death in the winter. The evergreen conifers of today began popping up in German homes in the 16th century. When full trees were scarce, people would erect wooden pyramids decorated with fallen boughs of other green plants. Many historians credit Protestant reformer Martin Luther with the original idea for decorating trees with lights. One winter night, he was strolling through the woods working on a sermon when he was awestruck by the sight of hundreds of twinkling stars sparkling through the evergreen canopy. As this was the time before camera phones and with no other way to recreate the scene for his family upon his return home. Luther brought a cut tree into the house and hung lit candles in its branches to recreate the scene. The Christmas tree tradition remains alive and well in the United States. There are Christmas tree farms in all 50 states, including Hawaii, and a tree is typically included in the White House holiday decorations, with one notable exception. Christmas trees were banned from the White House during Teddy Roosevelt's administration for environmental reasons. For anyone that isn't familiar with U.S. presidents, Roosevelt was known as our great conservationist president for the 230 million acres of public lands he brought under federal protection during his presidency. Another long-standing Christmastime staple in the U.S. is the Rockefeller Center tree in New York City. The now magnificent display of holiday cheer has humble working-class beginnings. Trees have been placed at Rockefeller Center every year since 1931, when Depression-era construction workers building at the site placed a small, undecorated, 
Charlie Brown Christmas-esque tree in the rubble. In 1933, a tree was brought back, but this time with lights. Today, the Rockefeller Center tree is one of the tallest in the country and is adorned with more than 25,000 lights each year. Next up on our list is Winter's Perfect Wingman, Mistletoe. Ironically, for a plant associated with lovers, mistletoe is a plant parasite and in the wild can kill the hardwood trees it leeches from. Appearing in the winter as a tuft of healthy, green, oval-shaped leaves with pearly white berries on unsuspecting tree branches, Mistletoe parasitizes several genera of trees, including apple, linden, poplar, willow, and oak. There are several hundred species of mistletoe on all continents except for Antarctica, and are grouped in the sandalwood family, ironically named Santa Lacee. Historians have a few different ideas about how mistletoe got its common name. Some think that it comes from the Anglo-Saxon word mistleton, a mashup of the words misel, meaning different, and tan, meaning twig, in reference to their stark contrast in appearance to their host. Others think it comes from mistel, meaning dung, and tan, meaning twig, in reference to their strategy of seed dispersal. Their white berries are poisonous to most animals, but birds are immune to their toxins and happily munch on them all throughout the winter. Armor-like seed coats protect the seeds from digestion, and the birds poop them out all throughout the land, spreading the parasitic plants and branches far and wide. How romantic. Celtic druids revered mistletoe as a medicinal wonder plant and a magical charm. Mistletoe tinctures were used to treat numerous diseases, increase male and female fertility in humans and animals alike, and were thought to both bring good luck and protect against witches. If enemies came across mistletoe on the battlefield, they would lay down their swords and embrace, and call a truce until the following day. The peacemaking properties of the plant stem from Norse mythology. The goddess of Fridays, Frigg, had a beloved son named Baldur. To protect him, she made all creatures on land or sea that walked on the ground or grew in the earth, promised to never harm him. Egged on by a good challenge, 
the trickster god Loki found a loophole to the oath in the mistletoe. Because its parasitic nature made it technically exempt since it grew on another plant and not in the ground. Loki built a spear out of mistletoe and used it to kill Balder. Frigg's tears at the loss of her son became the mistletoe's pearlescent berries. She was not a vengeful goddess, and in memory of her son, decided that the mistletoe would forever be a symbol of friendship and peace. In respect of the goddess, druids treated mistletoe as sacred, and would use special golden knives to remove them from oak trees, which were rare and regarded as especially significant. This was a team effort, as great care was taken to ensure the mistletoe never touched the ground, lest it lose its magical properties. It was instead caught midair in a ceremonial cloth, and a white ox would be sacrificed to mark the occasion. Mistletoe was also important in Greek mythology. In the story of Aeneas, he sets out on a quest that leads him to attempt to visit his father in the afterlife. Advised by the witch Sybil, he must find and collect something called a golden bow from a tree in the forest. Historians agree that this was likely in reference to a mistletoe, as the present-day species found in the supposed locations of the Greek mythos are gold-colored. Mistletoe was seen as a connection between the forces of life and death, as the mistletoe thrives while the host slowly dies off. Next up is a favorite of living rooms, lobbies, and laptop screens alike, the Yule Log. Yule Logs are a Nordic tradition that stem from ancient solstice festivities. Yule is another word for Christmas that comes from the Gothic and Saxon word for wheel, which was pronounced similarly, as a reference to the solstice time and the cyclical nature of the day length. In the beginning, Yule Logs were entire felled trees that were dragged inside to the hearth to be burned slowly over the course of either 12 hours or for 12 days, and coincided with the Druid festival called Alban Arthven, or Light of Winter. During the longest nights of winter leading up to the solstice, Druids would light bonfires to coax the sun's return. Yule logs were ignited from the ashes of the past year's Yule log and had to either be found on one's land or gifted, but never purchased. Oak was a common choice because its strength and stability symbolized triumph in the new year. As the log burned, people told ghost stories and the tales of their ancestors and divinations were made based on the shadows of the people around the fire. Keeping the ashes was thought to protect the house from lightning until the following year. The Yule Log was often sprinkled with wines or fragrant oils to increase the sensory experience. The Yule Log inspired both a delicious French dessert and one of the most commonly viewed holiday videos on the internet today. 
If you've been anywhere near a screen during the holiday season, chances are you've seen a video of a roaring fire crackling away in a fireplace. This type of video first appeared in 1966 when a local New York WPIX news station had a half hour to fill on Christmas. The station's president decided to air a tape of the burning hearth in the New York City mayor's residence, decorated for Christmas. Now videos like these have millions of views on YouTube and are the perfect touch of cheesy classiness for any holiday party. But that first broadcast caused a lot of expensive trouble for the mayor that Christmas. A spark from the fire ignited the carpet near the fireplace, resulting in $4,000 of damage. Merry Christmas to you, Mayor. Yule logs are burned in many countries, but one of the standout iterations comes from Catalonia. In the autonomous nation in the northeast of Spain, Children spend the month of December caring for Tio de Nadal, or the Christmas log. A little log with four tiny little legs, with two eyes, a big smile, a rosy little nose, and a festive red sock hat. Starting on December 8th, Tio is fed a little bit each day, and kept wrapped in a warm blanket so that he is comfortable. Children do not do this out of the goodness of their little hearts. If they take good care of the log on Christmas, he will poop out gifts for them. Another name for him is Kagatio, or Poo Log, for that reason. Around Christmas, the family will put Kagatio partway into the hearth and threaten to burn him if he doesn't poop out gifts. Nowadays, many homes don't have fireplaces. So instead, the children beat Kagatio with sticks until the parents make them leave the room to go pray for gifts. At that point, the parents place small gifts and candies around the log and under the blanket and call the children back in to announce the gift's arrival. I found an adorable song on YouTube about this tradition. There is a link in the episode notes that I highly suggest you watch. If you're the type of person to gift or receive plants, chances are you've interacted with this next plant at some point in your life. The poinsettia is the most popular potted plant sold in the United States and Canada, accounting for an estimated 250 million US dollars in the United States alone each year. The beautiful red foliage that most people assume are flowers are actually modified leaves called bracts. The actual flowers are the tiny yellow clusters in the center of the red bracts. Poinsettias are native to Central America, 
and were not called poinsettias until they were introduced to the United States by the ambassador to Mexico, Joel Roberts Poinsett, in 1828. Before that, the plant was already a popular holiday staple across Mexico. Aztecs in southern Mexico used the plant to decorate, but also used dyes extracted from it in textiles and cosmetics, and used the plant sap as an ingredient in a fever treatment. There's a Mexican Christmas story about poinsettias and a girl named Pepita. In the legend, Pepita was very poor and couldn't afford a gift for the baby Jesus. A member of her family reminded her that Jesus would be happy with any gift given in love, so Pepita picked a bouquet of weeds on her way to the chapel. She was embarrassed at her meager offering. However, when she set the bouquet at the nativity in her church, the weeds transformed into vibrant red poinsettias before her very eyes. From then on, the flowers were thought of as a Christmas miracle and were known as Flores de Nochebuena, or Flowers of the Holy Night. Next up is the holiday favorite, Holly. Holly's jagged green leaves and juicy red berries are often the only greenery left in the coldest winter months and are a common inclusion in holiday wreaths and mantle decorations. Holly was regarded as a fertility symbol and representative of eternal life by the Druids, who also held a superstition that cutting down a holly tree would bring bad luck while bringing holly branches into the home would bring good luck. They would also wear holly crowns during ceremonies and believed it could protect against lightning. In Celtic mythology, the time between the summer and the winter solstice is ruled by the holly king, and upon the solstice, the oak king would defeat him and roll until the following summer solstice at which he would be defeated by the Holly King, and the cycle repeats ad infinitum. In Europe, holly trees were typically not trimmed alongside other shrubs and hedges because of superstition surrounding cutting down native trees. The prickly leaves of holly were thought to be able to stop witches in their tracks, as witches were known to run along the tops of neatly trimmed hedges. They were also used to orient farmers plowing in the winter, as their distinctive shape stood out from a distance. Early Christians used holly to blend in with pagans celebrating around the solstice and avoid persecution. They thought that holly could ward off evil spirits and eventually adopted holly as part of the Christian mythology, stating that the prickly leaves symbolized Jesus's crown of thorns and the red berries his blood shed for salvation. Interestingly, at the same time, pagans brought holly into the home to give fairies a place to stay in the winter so that they didn't force their way in and play tricks on them. One pagan solstice ceremony included a young boy dressed in a costume made of holly, and a young girl dressed as ivy. 
parading through the villages to symbolize evergreen plants carrying nature through the darkest time of the year into the fertile springtime. They also believed that the first plant that was brought in after the solstice would determine who would rule the house the following year. If prickly and masculine holly was brought in first, the man of the house would be in charge. But if the more feminine ivy was brought in first, the woman would rule. So now, we know that historically, the answer to Beyonce's question, who run the world, would have been ivy. story isn't technically about a plant, but is too shocking and interesting to pass up. There is a mushroom that may have created the basis for the story of Santa and his eight reindeer, and you've got to hear about it. First off, if you didn't know, mushrooms and other fungi are often included in plant topics, yet are actually more closely related to animals than plants. But, in my research for this episode, this mushroom kept coming up, so I wanted to include it. The mushroom I'm talking about is the psychedelic Amanita muscaria, or fly agaric, and is found in temperate forests across the Northern Hemisphere, and has now at this point been introduced to the Southern Hemisphere as well. You've probably seen drawings of this mushroom. It's the classic red toadstool with white spots commonly depicted in cartoons and other media. Smurfs live in fly agarics, and Super Mario eats them for power-ups. They are also included in lots of vintage Christmas decorations, perhaps due simply to their festive colors or perhaps due to a deeper connection with the holiday folklore. In its native range, people commonly used to eat fly agaric in the winter months. They associate with certain trees, including several types of conifer and birch, and are easy to spot in the snow and in low-light conditions due to their bright red and white spotted color. Eaten raw, the mushroom is slightly toxic, but an inconvenient double-boiling procedure renders them edible and non-hallucinogenic. They are still eaten around the world today. Air-drying them, conversely, allows them to retain their psychedelic properties and thus were frequently included in ritual practices by Siberian shamans. Also, interestingly, the mushrooms are sought out by native reindeer and produce similar psychedelic symptoms when ingested, including cycling through periods of confused stupor and energetic and erratic behavior. Some reindeer would stare off for hours at a tree, while others would be bouncing off the walls. 
The psychedelic chemicals muscimol and ebotenic acid remain largely intact after digestion in both humans and reindeer, and is flushed from the body through the urinary tract. Urine from shamans, and in some reports even reindeer, that had consumed Amanita muscaria mushrooms, was sometimes collected and then drank by others, as the majority of the psychoactive chemicals from the mushrooms are unmetabolized by either system. Symptoms include Alice in Wonderland syndrome, a condition characterized by visual distortions that make certain things appear unusually large or close in proximity, a condition characterized by visual distortions that make certain things appear unusually large or close in proximity, while others appear strangely small or distant, and synesthesia, where stimulation of one pathway of sensory processing triggers an unrelated secondary pathway, resulting in phenomena such as experiencing numbers as a certain color, or associating shapes or colors with certain sounds as well as hallucinations. Overdosing is possible and has similar neurologic and cardiac symptoms to datura poisoning, which I talked about in episode 4, Deadly Dreams. So, at this point, you're probably wondering what any of this has to do with Santa. Indigenous Siberian people, like most other people in the Northern Hemisphere, celebrated the winter solstice at the end of December. A common gift from shamans to members of their community would be small bags of dried Amanita mushrooms, which they supposedly collected while wearing ceremonial outfits that were red with white accents in honor of the mushroom's colors, with warm black reindeer skin boots. The mushrooms were dried either hung in the branches of the coniferous trees that they were found under, or in bags hung near the hearth in the home. At the time, people's homes were portable structures with wooden frames that were covered by animal skins, furs, and fibers made from hair. And the architecture varied by region, but all featured a more or less dome shape with an opening in the center for smoke to escape from indoor fires. In the most severe winters, where snow would reach over 10 feet deep, the only way to enter or leave these homes would be through this opening in the roof. So, for them, a shaman dropping in through the roof with a big bag of red and white mushrooms as a holiday gift would not be such a magical tale. Not at least until one ingested said mushrooms. Due to the Alice in Wonderland syndrome and hallucinogenic effects of the mushroom, paired with reindeer's spastic reaction to the psychedelic chemicals, who's to say that people didn't see reindeer suddenly begin to fly? In some legends, shamans would eat the mushrooms and take a spiritual journey to the Tree of Life which was a large pine tree under the North Star, and would learn the answers to all of the village's problems of the past year. In others, shamans and their reindeer would both ingest the mushrooms before flying together to the North Star to retrieve the gift of knowledge to share with the village. These legends were mixed with Germanic and Nordic lore, 
in which either the god Wotan or Odin take a midnight ride on an eight-legged horse to escape demons during the solstice. The eight-legged horse became a team of eight reindeer over time, who would inexplicably fly around the world each Christmas to deliver gifts from the North Pole. Evidently, a miraculous trip indeed. so much for listening this year and I wanted to let you know that I'll be continuing the show in 2020 so don't worry you'll still get your monthly dose of plant nerdiness if you want to make my holiday really special please rate comment and subscribe on iTunes it helps other people find the show even if you don't listen on iTunes rating and commenting helps me out in the search algorithms Follow us on Twitter at PlantarumPod. Feel free to reach out with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Full episode transcripts and graphics with image descriptions are available at community.plantae.org. I'll be back next decade with more tales from the weird and wacky world of plants. Stories Plantarum is written and produced by me, Rebecca Hayes. Intro music is Age of Technology by DP Music. And outro music is Business Talk, also by DP Music. Songs featured in this episode in order of appearance are Carol of the Bells by Lady Jazzer, Foreign Film by M.M., Peaceful by Ours Vince, Gerodo by Romualdo Barone, a Quarter Past Midnight by Lita. Time Paradoxes by Roberto Daglio. Kaga Tio by Nora Jones. Two Endings by Wend. Christmas Bells by Simone Celio. And Morning Waltz 2 by Roberto Daglio. Sources for this episode include a 2014 traditionalmedicines.com article titled A Look Back, Plant-Based Holiday Rituals, a 2010 NPR article by Richard Harris titled Did Shrooms Send Santa and His Reindeer Flying, a 2009 history.com article by the editors titled History of Christmas Trees, a 2007 How Stuff Works article by Sam Abramson titled, Why Do We Decorate with Holly at Christmas? A 2019 article on thespruce.com by David Bolio titled, The Holly and the Ivy, History Behind the Song. A Garden Uity blog post titled, Holiday Plants, The Complete History. A Michigan State University Extension post by Dixie Sanborn titled, Holly, A Christmas Tradition. A 2011 Living on Earth radio show titled, Legend of the Poinsettia. Lyrics.com, a University of Vermont Extension article in the Green Mountain Gardener by Dr. Leonard P. Perry titled, Mistletoe Myths and Medicines. 
a mistletoe.org.uk page titled Mistletoe Traditions. An urbanlegendsonline.com article titled Papitas Poinsettias. A U.S. Forest Service Plant of the Week article by Larry Stritch titled Plants of the Winter Solstice. A University of Vermont Extension article in the Green Mountain Gardener by Dr. Leonard P. Perry titled Plants of the Winter Solstice. A University of Illinois Extension, the Poinsettia Pages blog post by Erica D. Seltzer and Marianne Spinner titled Poinsettia Facts. A 2016 Baltimore Sun article by Christina Tkasik titled Remembering Saturnalia, the Pagan Precursor to Christmas. A 2019 LearnReligions.com article by Patty Wigington titled Sacred Plants of the Winter Solstice. A 2018 Medium.com article by Mustafa Itani titled Santa and Magic Mushrooms. A 2017 Inhabitat.com article by Holly McHorter titled Santa and the Shrooms, the real story behind the design of Christmas. The Wikipedia pages for Synesthesia, Tio de Nadal, and Amanita Muscaria. A whychristmas.com article titled The History of the Yule Log. An Iowa State University Extension and Outreach article by Richard Wharton titled The Legends and Traditions of Holiday Plants. A 2017 Quartz News article by Susan Hausen and Jacob Templin titled The Yule Log, a Pagan Ritual Turned YouTube Phenomenon. And a National Park Service NPS.org page titled Theodore Roosevelt and Conservation. Full citations are available in the transcript on community.plante.org. You can look for a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Have a happy new year.